The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This verse is written in the context of judgment. God's judgment against sin. So in the stillness of this moment, consider this. God is holy. And we cannot stand before Him unless we are holy as well. We've been singing about Jesus all morning. We cannot be holy apart from Jesus. Most of you would consider yourselves followers of Jesus. If so, know this. It is because God chose you to be His child. If you stand before the Lord clean and forgiven of your sins, it is because He has brought you to this place. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Father, we are so often uncomfortable with complete silence. Some of us are anyway. Because we are aware in those moments of your holiness. And it's difficult to stand before you in our sin and in our weakness and in our shame even but in Jesus we stand perfect and holy and we thank you Lord for making us that which we were not worthy to stand before you thank you that when you look at us you see Jesus when we have believed in him when we have trusted his Blood as the covering, as the satisfaction, as a propitiation for our sins and our sin. And so we are grateful this morning. Our hearts rise to you. And as we think about the way that you called Abraham and everyone associated with him, we give thanks for your intervention, your Involvement, your great love for us, and your great care and your great call on our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's so good to see Max and Norma back here this morning. Norma is walking gingerly so be careful with her be easy with her when she gets enough strength in her ankle she'll be kicking max and so then he'll be walking gingerly after that but she can kick any of us and we'll be okay with that i do want to say also we one other very special prayer request julie cochran has pneumonia and quite she had a really tough time breathing yesterday and got to the hospital and they gave her some steroids I'm sure and something for the pain and 
so she's doing a little better. But look, there are needs everywhere. Jonna uh, Grabowski's back in the hospital. So please just just be praying. A lot of difficult days for a lot of people in our congregation. Well, this morning we will return to Genesis in full. The title of our series is Gospel Origins. If you have, are you, if you're familiar with the term gospel, you tend to connect it usually with the New Testament. Um, you also tend to connect it with a few specific truths neatly laid out, such as that we are sinners and something had to be done, so Jesus came to die for our sins. And if we'll repent of our sin and believe that Jesus' death on the cross was payment for us, then we become God's children. And that's true. That is the gospel, but it's only part of the gospel. All of that is gospel, but there's a whole lot more to the gospel. The gospel is all of Scripture. You, you'll remember from our study in Galatians that the Apostle Paul said that the Scriptures preached the gospel to Abraham. That's pretty astounding. I remember when we were going through it, I've read that verse, I can't tell you how many times, and yet it just caught my attention, captured my imagination. The Scripture preached the gospel to Abraham. Abraham is without question all over the Bible. The only other person that comes close outside of Jesus is Moses. Abraham is talked about everywhere. He's mentioned in most of the Old Testament books. Uh, Jesus said that Abraham rejoiced that he would see Jesus' day. Peter preached about him. Stephen mentioned him several times in his last sermon. And no less than four writers of New Testament letters talked about Abraham. Uh, we get new information in the New Testament about Abraham. Some of the things that, it's kind of like the New Testament fills in some of the blanks for us that we weren't sure about or we didn't know about and maybe we weren't even thinking about when they tell us about Abraham. Um, we're going to have an opportunity to look at several of those passages over the next eight weeks. It's going to take us eight weeks to get through the Abraham saga. Now, next week we're going to be, next two weeks we're going to be talking primarily about Melchizedek, uh, who really points us to Jesus. But we'll be talking about Abraham's story for about eight weeks. We're going to take a break uh, for the Easter season then, and afterwards we'll move on to Isaac and Jacob, after which we'll take another short break, and then we'll finish up with the Joseph story. But everything, all of these stories are pointing to Jesus. As we've mentioned before, Genesis is really almost more of a New Testament book than it is an Old Testament book. And yet it's so clearly connected with the rest of the Pentateuch. Everything just flows. So how long is it going to take us to get through Genesis? Not sure exactly, but let's don't worry about the time. I mean, just we need to allow God to establish this foundational book deep in our hearts and deep in our thinking. Already, I was talking with um, Deborah Moneypenny before the service, and I was telling her about, you know, I've got several teaching things coming up, and she was saying, so are you teaching or are you being teached? Taught is for, she, she knows that she was just, kidding she said are you being taught or are you teaching and I said I'm teaching she said ah but and then I knew what she was saying when you teach you learn 
way more than the people that you're teaching. I can't tell you what this study for Genesis has done for me. I wish I could communicate it all, but you don't want me to communicate everything that I know. Believe me. Um, Those are the worst sermons that I preach when everything I know I say to you on Sunday mornings. So when you study like that, you're just forced to get into it at a level that that you would not ordinarily. And when you see how foundational this book is to everything else that flows in Scripture, don't worry, let's just take our time and, and, and see everything that we do. There are several books also in the Bible that sort of take you everywhere in Scripture, and Genesis is one of those. Genesis, Psalms, um, some of the Gospels, well, all of the Gospels really, and then the book of Acts particularly, Revelation. They send you all over Scripture, and Genesis does that. So we'll be going to some of those places today and all through these next several months. Now, when I told you the breakdown of the coming um, sermons, I talked about Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob and then Joseph. And so it'd be tempting to think that we're going to start moving into the stories of Scripture but that's not the purpose of Genesis. The stories are important. The stories are, are interesting. But they're teaching us something about God. They're teaching us something about ourselves. Um, and the characters in Genesis are important. Just like we are important to God, to one another, to his whole plan. It's not that people are unimportant. We are important, but we're important it's important for us to understand our place in God's story. The scripture preached the gospel to Abraham. But the gospel is not good news that bad people can come, become better if they work at it. And see, when you preach stories, if you're not careful, that's, all you're doing is teaching morality. Um, I heard uh, Albert Moeller say one time, Al Moeller uh, said, Is there morality in the Old Testament? Yes, there is, but that's not the only point. It's not the main point. Sure, we can learn from the things that we see in in these people's lives, but if all we get when we come here is, you know, five ways to have the faith of Abraham, we're not getting what God wants us. Abraham got his faith from God. And this is constantly pointing us to this, and we're going to see that very clearly today. So the gospel is not good news that bad people can become better. The gospel is the good news that God made provision for us who were hopeless and helpless apart from his provision. Well, what about Abraham? I mean, the New Testament speaks so highly of him. Indeed it does, but it talks about his faith, his belief in the promises of God that he would take care of him. Abraham believed God And he was credited with righteousness. But we're getting a little bit ahead of the story, so to speak. Where was Abraham when God first called him? Ur of the Chaldeans. Um, It was a city located about 200 miles south of Babel, which would become Babylonia, in um, modern-day Iraq. And it was a very prosperous city, but it was also a very pagan city. And Joshua 24 tells us that Abraham was over there with everybody else worshiping other gods, false gods, probably Nana or Nana, the the moon god chief among them. According 
to Deacon Stephen in Acts chapter 7 when he was preaching his last sermon. By the way, Deacon Stephen is going to be leading the prayer time next week. Please let's not have the same response that the Pharisees did to Deacon Stephen in Acts 7 and stone him to death. Um, But Stephen uh, tells us that God called Abraham while he was in Ur and told him to get to a land that God would show him. Now, maybe one of the ways God showed him was Terah said, okay, we're going to Canaan. Now, look, if you look at a map, here's Ur over here, and here's Canaan right here. And this is you looking at the map, not me. And so Abraham packed up all the kids and all the family, actually Tara did, and he said, okay, gang, we're going. And, and they took off and ended up in Haran. That would be like you saying, I'm going to go to Atlanta, and you pack everybody up, and so you head off to Cincinnati. It's, and so Tara went up there with his family, and they're up in Cincinnati, or excuse me, Haran, and they just settled. How long? We don't know. But Abraham stayed there just a lot along with the entire family. Now, there's evidence that Terah had family in Haran, so we can understand his movements and and lack thereof to some degree. But after he died, Hebrews 11.8 tells us that Abraham struck out for Canaan, not having any idea where he was going to settle there. The title of today's message may cause a little uneasiness for some of you. Before I address this, though, I want you to look at the text that we're looking at. Look, the end of chapter 11 of Genesis all the way through chapter 12 and then chapter 20 is a whole lot of ground to cover. And obviously, we're not going to cover all of that ground in detail. Uh, We will uh, seek, though, to glean the gospel origins in this passage. In fact, we're going to only read for our text Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And we're going to stand and do that, so if you would, please stand, and then I'll uh, address the title afterwards. Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, by the way, he was Abram until later when God changed his name to Abraham. He said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. We'll get to that. But I'm sure I'm going to use that name interchangeably today, Sarah, Sarai. She was Sarai first and then Sarah. So if I say Abraham when I should be saying Abram, forgive me. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Uh, Father, we thank you for your great providence, your great sovereignty. And the love and the grace that you poured out on Abraham. And by extension, we who believe and are considered his children. So, Lord, teach us this morning and cause our hearts to praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks and be seated. Okay, so about the title. 
The God who chooses unconditionally, as he will, without any activity on our part, he chooses us. There is no reason for God to lavish his grace on anyone. But in love, the scripture tells us over and over that he redeems a people for himself. The biblical word for this um, activity of God, his dealings with man is election. He elects some to salvation and there lies the tension with so many people. He obviously does not choose some people to be saved. If he elects some, then he chooses not to elect others. And since we know that our God is a God who requires us to be absolutely holy or cleansed from our sinful state before we can stand before him, then that means that there are some who are not chosen or not elected, which can only mean that they're chosen for eternal judgment. Now you can say, no, 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 that's not, but it's difficult not to come to that conclusion. Clearly God's ways and his ideas and his thoughts are are bigger than us. And it took me a long, long, long time to come to the place that I am now. Because this just doesn't sit well often initially for a mind that's been shaped by democracy. A mind that argues that everybody needs to have a fair shake. Everybody ought to have a fair chance. If not outright equal distribution of the resources of the land. That's just the way we think. Look, it's just not right for this person to have this and this person not to. You know, what... Who made that decision? Remember this, though. Not only are we shaped by our American culture, we are severely limited in this fallen world in our ability to understand the ways of God. We can reason, we can employ logic, and we can make things work. In fact, I am convinced one of the big problems that we have as theologians today, not that I'm considering myself a great theologian, but I'm just thinking, when, when you read people who, who think about these things at, at, at a very high and deep level, you can see how influenced we are by the enlightenment where, and, and, and science where everything has to make sense. We have to explain everything. It has to fit in a neat little package. And so consequently we say, okay, well these two verses don't seem to add up. They must mean, this verse must mean that in light of this. Often that is very obviously true. The overwhelming uh, evidence of Scripture or the bulk of all the verses point in a certain way. So we have to read this one in this way. But sometimes it's just that God is bigger than we are. And we can't figure it out. Don't know that we will ever understand it fully. Because He is infinite, we are finite. He is holy, we are sinful now. There will be a day when we will be holy as well because He makes us that way. And our understanding may grow, but it's going to be difficult in this life to make everything work the way that we want it to. I want to do something a little different this morning. Uh, Since election is such a a tough concept for some, I want to read a few paragraphs from Michael Williams' book, Far as the Curse is Found, The Covenant Story of redemption. Uh, And I'm going to stop and, and, and comment in a few places. So let's start on this quote. One of the most prominent ways 
in which God displays his sovereignty through Scripture is by exercising his indisputable right to make choices. Stop already. Do you agree that a holy, sovereign God can do as he pleases, that he's not accountable to us? Would you agree with that? I know that's not your issue. Of course you do. You say, well, yes, I do. I just don't think I I understand it quite like you understand. Keep going. Human beings share this ability to a limited degree. But only the sovereign Lord of the universe experiences complete freedom as he chooses to embark upon or desist from a certain choice or action. Now, let me ask you a question. As a human being, you have choices, right? Is it true that some of your choices, I, I, I doubt it. I don't even, well, let me, let me, I've started down the road. Let me go there. Do some of your choices upset other people? <laughs> do they aggravate other people? And what do you say? Well, you're just going to have to get over that. That's just the way it is. You know, I've been put in this position where I've got to, it's all, well, of course. Let's keep going. Bound only by his holy character. For God is always true to himself. The sovereign king of creation and lord of the, of the covenant exercises his sovereign right in the elective choices he makes to lavish his redemptive grace upon one and not another. Let that sink in for a moment. God is always true to himself, to his holy character. And if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, God has lavished his grace upon you. He chose you. Can you just rest in that and and rejoice in that? And not be so, look, if you are so agitated inside, I know, I've been there, I, I, I understand it. But don't be agitated about what's right and what's wrong. I don't think you would accuse God of being unfair. But you would say, no, no, I just don't think that's the way God is. Oh, in other words, if the Scripture overwhelmingly says that God chooses, that He pulls, remember where He pulled Abraham? Was it because Abraham in in, in the moon, God's temple said, you know, I don't think this is right. Something's got to be different, and I'm just going to walk differently. I'm not going to participate in this. No, He just chose him out of the middle of His pagan lifestyle and His worship. And He said, I'm marking you for Myself. Do not miss the blessing of election in your attempt to explain it away. Now, if you have not trusted Jesus, if some of this, like, I'm not exactly sure what you're talking about. I think I'm getting it. I've always thought in my life that you're supposed to do good things, and if your good works out well, your bad works, God will let you in. And that's kind of the way I thought that you get to heaven but you're saying that you, you can never be good enough. That's right. If you understand that much, if you get the idea that God chooses some and not others, and you're saying, whoa, I wonder if I'm chosen, that's an indication that God's calling you. 
And your responsibility, your, what you need to do is to respond just like Abraham did to God's call. God said, go. Abraham said, okay. I'm, where am I going, God? Silence. Okay, I'm just going. God said, go. I'm going. So, you're going to have the opportunity to do that. This very day at the end of our service. Let's keep reading. Many Christians curiously claim not to believe in the doctrine of election. They earnestly believe that the doctrine is nowhere to be found in the Bible. That the idea of election is the product of a sectarian or a narrow group, a narrow mind, a conclusion of systematic theology that we are free to dismiss either as biblically unnecessary or as wrong-headed. You know, I'm always taken aback, even when I believed a little differently I I said look you can't deny the doctrine of predestination election it's all over scripture you just have to understand it a little bit differently but I was trying to make it be something that it was not it God choosing God predestinating God electing these words are everywhere in scripture even though the Old Testament uses mostly different words it talks about choice and choosing God's actions are clear from start to finish. And Williams addresses that in the next and last paragraph that we're going to look at from his book. Yet election is not a theological term, but a biblical one. I- indeed, the doctrine of election does not require that we draw the synthetic inferences required by contrast for a doctrine such as the Trinity. Now, do you get what he's saying by that? See, the word Trinity is not in Scripture. And... It seems so clear to you and me, the Trinity, the fact that, oh yes, God is one and yet he's three. Well, let's be a little more specific. God is three persons, one nature, one essence. You know how long it took the church to get it right? Four centuries almost. Three and a half centuries. It took, they were hammering it out. And and the only reason they developed, the church, the early church developed the doctrine of the Trinity is because there were heresy was was popping up. And they said, we've got, to, we've got to make sense of this. So they found a way to explain what the Trinity is, who the Trinity is. It doesn't, the Scripture just puts it out there. This is God and Jesus. Jesus is I and the Father of one. Well, what does that mean? Well, theologians constructed this doctrine of the Trinity. And it's in every Orthodox church church's doctrinal statement that exists. We all believe the Trinity. You don't have to do that for election. Predestination. Those words are just there. Over and over we're told God chooses us. He elects us. He is predestined. He has predestinated this to happen the way that it does. So, in finishing here, God's sovereign right to choose the recipients of his redemptive grace drips from the pages of Scripture. The verb to elect means to choose. The doctrine of election is that God applies his redemptive favor to those he sovereignly chooses, end quote. 
So in God's sovereign will, Abram was chosen to be the father of all who believe. Was he the father of the Jews? Absolutely. And is he also the father of all who believe? Well, the scripture says that he is. Galatians 3, 28 and 29, and then Romans 4, 11, make it clear that we have a spiritual connection to Abraham if we believe in Jesus. It's Abraham's faith that is pointed to as the cause of his relationship with God. And faith was not this sort of a mystical just sense that everything is going to be all right. Look, look, you hear a lot of people... One of the big problems that we have in communicating truth today is that we use the same language, but we don't mean the same thing. When people say, oh, this person's faith will get him through. Well, faith in what? If you're just having faith, a a general sense of feeling that everything is going to be all right, well, everything's not going to be all right apart from Jesus. If we're not connected with Jesus through our faith in him and and belief in the promises of God, then it's not Bible faith. It's not biblical faith that someone is talking about. So it was a belief in the promises of God that were revealed to Abraham that caused God to say, you are a righteous man. Not because of the good things that he did, not because of his wisdom, but because God said, this is what is true. And Abraham said, I believe you, God. God has revealed himself far greater and more fully to us through Jesus and through the completed word of God written in Scripture. And when we acknowledge that we're sinners having no hope of getting to God apart from his work in our life by sending his son Jesus who lived a perfect life and thus was an eligible sacrifice to die in our place because death is the wage of sin. The wages of sin is death, scripture says. Separation from God for all eternity. And unless there is a death then God's wrath is not satisfied when Jesus died. All of his wrath was poured out on Jesus for those who believe. When we choose Jesus, it is confirmation that God has chosen us. Now that's different from saying that God chooses us because he knows ahead of time that we'll choose him. And so he says, oh, okay, that's what's going to happen. It's, no. When we choose Jesus, that is confirmation that God has chosen us. Our choice only confirms God's plan, God's will, his call on our lives. So let's think about God's call of Abram in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now, this is covenant language. God doesn't use the word covenant. In in a few weeks, when we get to February, Sean's going to take a couple of weeks in Genesis 15 to 17 and talk about covenant. But this is covenant language, just the same way that God spoke in covenant terms with Abraham, I mean, excuse me, with Adam and with uh, Noah. And he promised that his plan would come through a particular line Uh, he's saying the same thing to Abraham without saying this is a covenant it's going to get much more specific in a few weeks Uh, God calls Abram out of a home that was anything but as we've already established Bible believing and he established his covenant with Abram now look 
one of the primary ways God does extend his covenant to us today is through families. That's why all Christians should marry young and have many, many babies. No amens on that. Now I've lost my place. I'm in big trouble. All right, let's close in prayer. Um, look at look at this now. Look, I, this is not in the this is not in the, in my notes, and I you know consider whether I should say something about this. And since I'm going to, I, I probably here's the, again get in trouble. Look, some of you want me to talk about this idea that God established His covenant with the nation of Israel. And that this is good for today. And that all those who bless the nation of Israel will be blessed. And those who curse it will be cursed. Boy, you can point actually to a lot of history and say that's true. Is it true? I don't know. I mean, up until the last few years, I would have said absolutely. I can tell you this. God's people. It's, it's, this promise is at the very least, it's this. God is establishing his covenant with his people. Abraham, the New Testament tells us, is the father of all who believe in Jesus. Is he done with the nation of Israel in a covenant kind of a way? I don't know. I mean, Romans 9, 10, 11, you can point on both sides of the argument and say, yes, it's this way, yes, it's that way. So that's, that's all I'm going to say about that. I'm not sure. I do know this. These promises extend to all those who believe in Jesus. We have to, you'll talk about this in home group a little bit tonight. It, it's not exactly the same. In, in the Old Testament, the, the, the promise was pretty much, if you love me, if you serve me to his people, if you love me, serve me, obey me, I will bless you every way imaginable, materially, physically, long life, spiritually, emotionally, your children, your grandchildren. In the New Testament, it's this. If you serve me, if you love me and serve me, you will suffer persecution. So there's a difference there, and we have to understand that the blessings in the New Testament are much more spiritual than they are material. All of the Old Testament story is setting up our understanding of Jesus and the hope that exists for us in the future. We'll talk about in a moment. But let, let's think about this for a minute. Look at, look at the difference between the, the, the men in Babel at the Tower of Babel, men and women there, and, and the way that God deals with Abraham. Think about what they were doing with that Tower of Babel. I mean, they were trying to build this city. They were gathering together. They said, let's don't be scattered. Let's gather together. It's, you know, at the very least, us four and no more. And if we want to get a bigger crowd, that's okay. But let's just stay right where we are and let's make a name for ourselves. Let's make this the greatest city in the world. Babel. God, of course scattered them, confused their languages, because everything they were doing was focused on self. God told Abram to leave his home. Get away from that place of security, familiar. He didn't have to shake Abram's world up so badly. Abraham just said, okay, I'll do it, God. You, he obeyed. When he was in Haran with his father, look, he, he was a dutiful son staying there with him. I don't think it's right to, for us to say, well, Abraham got sidetracked and God had to kill his dad before he could move. No need to go, go there. Abraham was doing what he should. 
he was respecting his father, and his father was the head of the, of the family. But after he died, he moved on down to Canaan. But he just obeyed God. And God said, you know what I'm going to do for you? I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to make your name great. And you and your family are going to bless the entire world. You're not going to keep this blessing to yourself like the people at Babel wanted to do. You're going to take this blessing everywhere. And the whole world is going to be blessed by you. And I want to tell you this too. Those, my covenant with you extends to this. Those who bless you are going to, going to be good with me. Those who mistreat you, well, they're going to have to answer to me. You could say Abraham, uh, God had Abraham's back. I mean, he just took care of him everywhere he went. And that is one of the great... Look, we don't have the promise of protection in the New Testament from all physical harm. In fact, we know that if we share the gospel in certain places, we're, we're dead. There's just no question. If we share it openly in certain places, we're dead. But when we walk with God, His protection, His spiritual protection, that if we really believe this, and that's a question, do we really believe it or not? If we do, then that's far greater than any physical protect, pr- protection or any material blessings that we might receive in this life. And when we walk away from God, we get outside of this protection. Well, not entirely as we will see, but far better for us to walk along with the Lord. In choosing Abraham for special blessing, and see, here's, here's what, this is where election and predestination come in. God was not ignoring the rest of the world. After all, I mean, God called his creation into existence. And he also called mankind to bear his image and steward this creation. All of mankind. God is not surrendering his sovereignly, kingly call here. But through Abraham and his family, God will mediate his blessings to all the family of the earth. God calls Abram and his family to serve the well-being of all the people that God has created by being the kind of community that all people are called to be by their creator. That's why church is so important. We're called to be that kind of community. And that's why we just have to get over ourselves and not bicker and fight. We have to be unified because we're representing Christ. God mediates his blessings through people, through organizations. All through scripture we see through, through Adam, through Noah, through Abraham, through the nation of Israel, through Jesus, through the church. God uses us to extend his blessings outward and we can't do that unless we're the kind of community that we're called to be by our creator so how did how did the nation of israel do in their role of mediating god's blessing to the earth not so well they became very inwardly focused and and became very arrogant in their relationship with Yahweh. I mean, Jesus accused the religious leaders of seeking only to glorify themselves, not to glorify God as they were called to do by their Creator. How does all of this impact you? Well, for starters, remember, if we have trusted Christ, we are a son of Abraham, whether we're Jewish or not. As a son of Abraham... 
You are called a son or daughter of Abraham. You are called to be a blessing to the world. And you can only bless the world as you share the good news that God redeems people through his son, Jesus. And he's made a way that eventually we're going to be able to return to the Garden of Eden. Only it's going to be a much better garden than the Garden of Eden. We will never be able to fall and we'll be singing Jesus' praises all along. It's the, it's, it's the garden that, that Sean talked about last week in Revelation 21, 22. It's the New Jerusalem. The only way we are a blessing to the nations is to provide them this good news of Jesus, and that means as difficult as it is, sometimes oh, it's so you know how tough it is. We need to disabuse people of the notion that they can find God or they can make themselves acceptable to God. C.S. Lewis said, "Modern man loves to talk about his search for God. From my experience, I can tell you it's about as foolish as a mouse's search for a cat." You don't want to find God in all of his glory and holiness and righteousness apart from Jesus. Far better for God to find me and deal with me according to his grace. Just like he found Abraham and dealt graciously with him. In this strange and wonderful mix of heaven and earth, God uses frail men and women to mediate his grace. God's grace is scandalous because being the bookkeepers that we are, we want to earn our salvation. What we're really thinking is that if we will just, if I perform in a certain way, then God is in my debt. And we say that in the silliest ways. I, a relative of mine was certain that a friend of hers was going to be welcome into heaven because she's so good to cats. And don't laugh. I mean, look, a lot of us, we, our ideas are just as silly. Before Jesus, we, we, we think there are all kinds of things. We keep these books and, and we're meticulous bookkeepers and we say, well, okay, well, I'm, I, I messed up here, but I'm, I'm telling you one thing, I'm, I'm not like that Greg Bagley. I'm, I'm not like him, so I've got to be all right. But then we do something that, you know, is worse than Greg Bagley and then say, well, okay, well, Scott Colbert, I'm, I've got, I got it on him, you know, and we just keep going until, and we're always fudging the books in our favor, kind of like the government, United States government, you know. But one day, you know, it all comes crashing down. Jesus made it clear that God's records don't look anything like ours. Nothing. You remember the parables of the workers in the city square? You know, some were came, he got, the, the, the employer got a bunch of people first thing in the morning, then he came back at noon and got some more, and then with about an hour left to go, probably the guys, you know, had, who were hung over in the morning, and just kind of out there waiting, and they said, well, we've been waiting all day, who knows if they have or not, but the employer says, okay, come on, and then he gives everybody an equal wage, and bookkeepers that we are say, that is not fair, and you and I would say the same thing. And we say the same thing when we say it's not fair for God to choose one and not another. But he's God. We have to get our minds out of our minds that we can earn anything. We can't. We cannot earn anything. Abram worshipped other gods, but in his mercy, God called him out of his pagan idolatry 
and into his gracious salvation. Grace doesn't focus on the recipient, but rather it highlights the giver. It's, you know, we, how, I, look, we've all said it. I bet you've said it this week, some of you. Oh, it'd just be so good if so-and-so would get saved. Just think of what God could do. God doesn't need him. He doesn't need her. He's God. It's no big deal about us. The big deal is about him. And because of that, we are so grateful. And God molds us into the kind of people that will bless the world if we will give him the praise that he tells us is his due, rightly tells us in his due. Romans 4 tells us essentially there's nothing that differentiated Abram from his neighbors. God chose him according to his will. Well, uh, wow, I thought I was on, almost done and I've got a whole nother page, so aren't we lucky? Look, I just quickly, let me say, Abraham is affirmed time and again in Scripture because of his, his faith. Uh, again, emphasizing God's goodness, not, not our goodness. But if you know the story about Abraham, you'll know at the end of chapter 12, uh, he made a big mistake. I mean, he went down to Egypt and, and, and Sarah, Sarai at this point is about 65 years old, somewhere in that neighborhood. By the way, I read this this week. I haven't run it down to search it out to see if it's true. But I read in the daily Bible that Allison and I are going through that Sarah is the only woman in, in, in Scripture whose age is given. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? So we know how old she was. Um, she was 65, somewhere along in that neighborhood. And with the ex- extended lifespans, that would put her in about the 30s of our day. She was of childbearing age still at this early stage, but she was barren. She had not been able to conceive. And so they go down to Egypt, and she must have been pretty good-looking women. I started to say hot, but that wouldn't be appropriate. So she must have been a pretty good-looking woman and attractive. And so, you know, Abraham knows how these things work, and so he's saying, look, I mean nothing to them. They're going to take one look at you and they're going to say, mm-hmm, just get rid of him. So, I, so he said, please say you're my sister. And that was a half-truth. It was a whole lie. We, we find out later that, you know, this is the case. And we're good at those, aren't we? Half-true, whole lies. What is up with that? I mean, Abraham is known for his faith. It's not long after he gets to Canaan that he goes to Egypt and he says, look, God says, I'm going to take care of you. Anybody who blesses you, I'll, I'll bless. If they curse you, they're going to have to answer to me. They dishonor you. They're in trouble. And, and so, you know, Abraham says, I believe you, God. I believe you. Yeah, Sarah, you know, when we get down here to Egypt, crazy i mean he was a man of faith indeed but in addition he was a son of adam he was concerned as we all are are at the core about self-preservation and even self-advancement self-aggrandizement i mean even though god had promised him children in a great name abram feared for his life but in spite of his sin (laughs) here's a crazy thing god sent him away from egypt Richer, far richer than he was when he went in. And if that wasn't bad enough, some 20 years later, uh, 20 plus years later, in the land between Canaan and Egypt, um, he did the same thing with Abimelech. Now, Sarah is Abimelech, the king of this Gerar, this just little area, but you didn't have to 
be over a big area to be king in those days. But he was still very powerful, and he knew that Abraham had been blessed by God, and he wanted to make a, an alliance with Abraham. And so he said, you know, what better way than to marry Abraham's sister? Because Abraham had pulled the same thing. You know, and then you see what happened. God came to Abimelech in a dream and said, you are a dead man. Dead man walking. Because of the woman you have taken, for she is the man's wife. And then Abimelech, of course, pleads ignorance. God accepts that. Abraham, Abraham has to pray for God's curse to be lifted off of Abimelech and the family. That's amazing to me. What comes to your mind when you read about Abraham's willingness to allow kings to sleep with his wife in order to save his own skin? Is that disgusting to you? It should be. It, uh, it should also cause you to praise God that this, that this salvation that we enjoy in Jesus is by grace, not by works, because every one of us is capable of horrible moral lapses. Every one of us is capable of the worst sin imaginable. Some of you for years and years were the most patient, kind people, and then something happened. And you blew your stack. You got angry. And now you struggle with bitterness, self-pity, all kinds of things. Look, we're all capable of anything. And if salvation is by works, we are doomed. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's who we are at the core. And that's why the call of God... His choice for us to be His children is such a breathtakingly wonderful truth. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, here is your opportunity to put your faith in Him. Just following along with what uh, Brad was talking about faith in the Old Testament from the book of Hebrews. What is faith? It is the confident assurance that what we hope for is going to happen. It is the evidence of things we cannot yet see. God gave his approval to people in days of old because of their faith. Then he goes to a whole list of, uh, and a summary of stories from about Abel, Enoch, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, and Rahab. And then... Later in the chapter, all of these people we have mentioned received God's approval because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. For God had far better things in mind for us that would also benefit them, for they can't receive the prize at the end of the race until we finish the race. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a huge crowd of witnesses in the life of faith, let us strip off weights that slow us down, especially sin. Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, on whom our faith depends from start to finish. He was willing to die the shameful death on the cross because of the joy he knew would be his afterwards. Now he is seated in the place of highest honor beside God's throne in heaven. Just think about all he endured when sinful people did terrible things to him so that we do not become weary and give up. This is a story that we need to share for his glory. Go in peace this week.